0: So, you want to save the planet.
1: In just a matter of months, more than 100 world leaders will gather in Glasgow, Scotland for COP26.
0: There, they will make some of the biggest decisions yet on how to tackle climate change and set out plans that'll change the way we all live our lives forever.
1: But that's the big picture. What can we do to help now? I'm Lewis Mickey.
0: And I'm Natalie Crawford Goodwin. And this is So You Want to Save the Planet. The planet and the countryside.
1: This week we're looking at the countryside, our green spaces and basically our natural assets as a nation.
0: Well, if there's one thing that Scotland has, it's natural assets. Lots of lovely coastline, green spaces. Just look at any video advertising tourism in
1: Scotland. And when we're speaking about these things, there really are multiple reasons for us to look to protect our countryside and any green space.
0: Yeah, obviously we want them because they look great, but a big forest or a sprawling countryside is clearly good for the planet too, sucking up all that carbon from the air.
1: And as we'll talk about later, we can actually utilise these spots for other things that are good for the planet. But first, let's talk about the forests because you mentioned them there.
0: So I know you've been talking to someone from Reforesting, Scotland.
1: I have. And as their name suggests, they look at the benefits of having lots of trees and and wooded areas and they aim to protect and even create more around Scotland. So I spoke to one of their directors, Alan Carter.
2: Reforesting, Scotland's a network of foresters, crafters, ecologists, artists, all sorts of people interested in forests, but also in forest culture. I think the central point of reforesting Scotland is that there's more to forests than trees. It's not just that they've got trees, it's that people are out in them foraging, they're hunting in them, and they've got forest schools in them, they might own a bit of forest, their community probably owns a bit of forest, so we're trying to put in place not just the trees, but all those other things that go along with the trees. So one example of project that we're doing as Reforest in Scotland is the Thousand Huts campaign, because that's one aspect of forest culture that I mentioned, that's a really important part of connecting people to the land over great swathes of, of Northern Europe. And it's something that died out in Scotland largely for land ownership reasons, we've been trying to re-establish that. So we started about 10 years ago now on that campaign, and we've managed to get the law changed so that hutting is now a category in planning law. You can get permission specifically for huts. And the way we've defined huts is that they're a very low-impact, off-grid building that can be completely removed at the end of its lifetime and has minimal impact on its surroundings. But once you've got the law changed, there's also a a cultural change there. people uh, in Scotland aren't used to the idea of hutting. So we've been promoting that in various ways, generally trying to get the idea out there, get the pieces of the toolkit for doing hutting into people's hands. From a climate point of view, obviously forests hold carbon, but you only really have forests if people value them and interact with them and it's part of their daily lives. What we're doing in promoting community forests and foraging and all that is trying to make forests part of people's lives so that we won't just be a nation with forests, we'll be a a forest nation properly.
1: And just in terms of looking around Scotland, I mean, where are there areas that you maybe see as being places where we can develop more uh, in terms of forests and where are areas maybe where you're looking to protect what's, what's already there, where maybe that resource is already quite good?
2: Well, there are certainly areas in Scotland that have more forests and others, Uh, side would be an example, both of more forests historically and a lot of projects going on to restore the forests, like the Gardens Connect project, Perthshire is another area that's famous for its big trees, but then there are areas like where I live in Aberdeenshire, is quite deforested, so there are some areas where there is more work to do and some areas that can act as a template for that work, definitely.
1: And if someone was listening to this and they think this sounds like a great idea I would love to kind of get more involved with forest culture as you said but they maybe don't know where to start what do you think is the starting point of that to try and get into being in more of a forest
2: culture? That's a hard one actually because there's so many aspects to it and I guess the place to start is with what you're interested in what excites you so if you're interested in food growing find out about forest gardening if you're interested in foraging join a foraging group if you have kids look into forest schools and so on if you fit and you have time to spare then uh, get involved in conservation volunteers group there's uh, lots lots of ways in and one of the great things about Scotland is our access laws we do have access to the countryside that's not an issue but for a lot of people that can be only theoretical access you know you need the transport to get there and so on and so one thing we in Scotland has pushed over its history is community forestry. And if you go again to countries like Germany, a lot of communities will have its own forests surrounding the community, which will be managed by the community. So we think it's very important to have forests where people live. It's not just the big wildernesses of the highlands, it's the city forests as well that people preferably can walk to. They don't have to to get the car to get to. So, you want
3: to save the planet?
1: Right, you mentioned Scotland's coastline earlier, so let's discuss a bit about that.
0: Well, our beaches and everywhere else along the sea aren't protected from climate change either.
1: They certainly aren't, and in fact, a report earlier this year has shown that over £1 billion of infrastructure in Scotland, like buildings and transport links, are at risk due to coastal erosion.
0: That's actually pretty shocking when you think just how much, how much value Scotland's coastline adds to the economy and to tourism. So what can we do about this?
1: Well, there's a Scottish government project called Dynamic Coast, so they can explain what they're trying to do. I spoke to their project manager, Alistair Rennie, and we did that in Montrose, which is quite apt because we're on the beachfront there where up to 80 metres of beach has eroded since the 1980s. So, like, you know, 40 years, you're talking about 80 metres, but now that's actually going even quicker because over the next 40 years, there could be a further up to 120 metres at risk. So let's hear from Alistair Rennie about what they're doing about that.
3: It's basically taking an understanding of how our coastline has changed in the past and how under different climate change emission scenarios, how the coastline may have into the future. And the work today, whilst we have been modelling and monitoring dunes like the ones you see behind us at Montrose, these dunes are eroding at between two and a half and three metres a year. We're trying to understand how that's happening at different parts around our coastline build models of how they may adjust into the future when we have amounts of sea level in the future under a low emissions or a medium or a high emission scenario. At the moment, globally, we're on track for a high emissions trajectory. And for Scotland, that means up to 1.2 meters of sea level rise, peaking in Shetland. But everywhere in Scotland will be experiencing sea level rise at the moment. And under all of the emission scenario, the low, the medium, and the high, sea levels behind us will increase. And that means that the erosion that we see today at certain locations like Montrose, but elsewhere around the country, is a sign of more things to come. And our maps at dynamiccoast.com are interactive maps. You can see where the coastline was, you can see where it is today, and you can put on different layers to find out where we expect them to be on a high emission scenario for the decades up to 2100. We've taken that analysis together and considered what assets, what society's assets, what roads, railways, housing, water supply networks, what these assets are at risk, cultural heritage assets as well, and natural heritage too, and which of these sites are likely to be affected by erosion as it quickens and reaches new areas of shore. We must maintain our artificial defences and we must maintain our natural defences. If we secure a low emissions future, if we get net zero quickly, if we decarbonise globally, then by 2050 we can cut the damages from 1.2 billion, we can reduce that by 400 million pounds. We have a range of choices that we can do, some of the hard engineering as we term it behind us, It works, it holds on to the land, but it also sacrifices the beach in front of it. So we need to use that sparingly. In certain bits of our shoreline, it's very clustered and very busy. We've got cities on the shore. We'll need to keep our defences there, we'll need to raise them. And that's absolutely understandable. Logical, in fact, of course it is. But there's other places, when we look around the coast, where actually we need to pick our battles. Sea level rise is going to happen quickly across the country, more so than it is already and we'll have tough choices. These maps help us to make better decisions on where we maintain these defences and where we move them as they have done in bits of the, the beach here, and take a more adaptive route. We can't protect everywhere. We need to invest in nature, invest in these dunes, manage the sediment a lot better, repair the dunes as well in places. There's plenty we can do. A few years ago, there was a wider feeling that climate change is somehow far away. And about other people and it's far away in time and space the extreme weather that we've seen across europe across the world of course and more locally is having a, a change we're seeing it people are recognizing it the increased flood frequency whilst we expect sea levels to rise up to 25 centimeters everywhere some places quicker under a high emission scenario that will radically influence the flood return period so a little bit of sea level rise causes our coastal floods to happen far more frequently. This is something we'll increasingly realise is happening on our doorstep.
1: So, you
4: want to save the planet?
1: Whilst we're talking about the beach, I want to link that with the water, I suppose, as you naturally yep, would. Yeah,
3: absolutely.
1: And we're going to go back to one of our previous guests, Mike Scotland.
0: So just to remind our listeners then, Mike, in our pandemic episode, took you along on a litter pick and told us all about the damage litter is doing to the environment, and it certainly won't be doing much for our green spaces either.
1: Well, Mike and his group, Community Cleanup, also took to the waters of the River Don in Aberdeen, or at least a small stretch where many of them live, and after months of clearing all sorts out of that water, it's made a massive difference.
0: So let's hear from Mike on what they've removed from the water and the benefits that's had.
5: So I think when we first initially started the clean up, it wasn't until the water level had dropped a little bit. And, you know, we'd seen some of the things that were lurking down. When we got inside the water, it was a different story. You know, you couldn't really walk without kicking a piece of metal or, like you said, a trolley. So we hauled out two and a half thousand kilograms worth of metal itself over probably a six month period and during that duration the cleanliness of the water was it was really evident you know more locals within the area that seen it maybe from the factory times that was when it become, became real for us they could see through the water and see the stones at the bottom for the first time we then had otters swim upstream for the first time in 40 years in a place that was an eyesore and seen as a dumping ground became this this haven for people to come down, enjoy nature, enjoy the water, enjoy seeing these these animals that hadn't been there in so long be there. And it became a magnet for you know positivity rather than that negative environment. And I think it's, you know, doing this litter picks and the cleanups, this has probably been one of the biggest differences that we've seen and that is why we do it. You know, absolutely massive difference. We've actually found some items from, you know, the old mills so we found some of the old cogs that used to be from the factory itself, which, you know, we talk about litter, but that's a that's a piece of history. You know, that's done its time. It's served its purpose. And it's now just left to rust and rot away into the elements. And for me, that needs to be spoken about. It needs to be shown. That's history, which we could learn from. And by just disposing of it, you're losing it. You're losing the, the importance of it. And unless you go online and you look through the search engines, you can't really find that and it's it's at our feet and we're just we're overlooking it you know
1: and i suppose it is the water one of the places where that litter is actually most evident the effect it has on it when you see seen how quickly things change by getting that out i think
5: you're probably right i mean it's it probably affects it the most because it gets left the longest because it's not seen you know all we see is the bit above the water you know i think it goes back to they know more about the moon than they do about the sea which is worrying because it's at our feet and I think it's very much out of sight, out of mind, you know, so there's going to be a small, small amount of people that really tackle it. You know, water is seen as a clean source of energy, but if you take a magnet and you throw it in the middle of a river, you throw it in a pond and you bring that magnet back out, it's disgusting to see the amount of metal particles and items that are attached to it. And that's quite worrying because it, it just shouldn't be there. And you know, that, that's the animals don't have the exposure to say, hey, can you come and clean this up, please? but I think they appreciate it. And that's evident from seeing the, the otter swim upstream to see more birds surrounding the areas itself. I mean, that is the difference, you know, and that's what it's all about, is seeing the difference and it's amazing. The pandemic, there'll always be the focus points of the physical element, the illnesses, but, you know, there's always a positive from the negative and that certainly came ahead with the litter picking, with able to maybe go into a river that, you know, I'd maybe just walked past before now I'm getting that freedom of going in and exploring it. And I guess, again, it's the litter that has came into the rivers because of the pandemic. A lot of people will maybe tack it downstream, you know, do the beach cleanups, which is great. It's absolutely amazing. But to prevent it to get to the, the sea, you need to go upstream. There's going to be a mixed amount of emotions there because a lot of people have been doing walks, you know, which has been good, but it just means they've been doing walks and throwing their rubbish but then you're getting the follow-up because of the pandemic a lot of people are getting outdoors and maybe the the kind-hearted souls are coming up behind them and cleaning it up you know you've got the combination it's a fine balance we need to knock that balance off and get more people picking it up and not throwing it down is the main thing we want that preventative measure of rather than just cleaning it up start to put it in the bin and dispose of it accordingly so you want to save the planet. We've talked
0: all about these natural assets of Scotland and you mentioned earlier in the podcast that we can utilise them to basically save the planet. So tell me a wee bit more about that.
1: Well, we're always speaking about renewable energy and really a lot of those are just taking something like the winds or the waves and having them create energy for us to consume.
0: And we did say Scotland has so much of this green space, so I suppose that there's nothing more climate-friendly than a whole heap of countryside with some wind turbines right
1: in the middle. Or, of course, you can take those turbines and you can have them set off the coast.
0: Well, we have the perfect guest to talk about this.
1: Yes, we have our wonderful sponsor, Ocean Winds. You've been hearing about them in each episode, but now it's time to take a deeper jump into what they do, so I've been speaking to Mark Baxter.
4: Ocean Winds is um, a joint venture company between EDPR, which is a renewables company, and ONGI, with the sole purpose of developing offshore wind projects across the world. Here in the UK, we have activity purely in Scotland, although we have other interests elsewhere in the world. And that interest is in one project that has just completed called Murray East, a sister project called Murray West, which is coming up for construction hopefully next year. Scotland itself is um, a country that is showing great promise for offshore wind and a large commitment to that with 11 gigawatts coming up next year for auction. What's interesting about offshore wind is one, the scale that you can get in terms of the size of the turbines and the generation that it can create. As you see the world, electrifying um, moving away from gas moving away from oil and with targets such as us phasing out petrol vehicles by 2030 you're going to see a much more increase in demand for electricity so we're going to have to do a lot more in terms of generation of that electricity and because of the scale of an innovation that's happened in wind and the movement offshore we're able to generate significant amounts of electricity now and just to give you a little bit perspective some of the earlier offshore wind turbines are in the near shore and that's because of the difficulty of potentially moving out to deeper waters. But what we've done here at Ocean Winds is we've managed to move our turbines offshore to 50 metres of depth and you know reach these depths and have larger turbines. And just to give some perspective on the scale of these turbines, The Murray East turbines are the size equivalent of the Eiffel Tower, for example, from the seabed to the top of the turbines. And if you think about the diameter of the turbines, then we're talking something in the scale of the London eye in terms of physical circumference. So you're talking massive, huge pieces of infrastructure in the water, which can now help us move towards our target of net zero. When we're looking at Scotland, Murray East itself could produce 40% of people's household's electricity in that one wind farm. So we're talking a significant amount of power this could generate and the UK is trying to move up to 50 gigawatts. And so what we're talking about is electricity that could significantly um, contribute to the UK's electricity demand, both commercially and also from a household perspective. When you think of Scotland, I mean, Scotland has been... Or the North Sea, to be more specific, has been generating energy for us for decades and decades, both through oil and gas. But now as we move to renewables, the North Sea is a vast resource for Scotland in terms of generating renewables and a vast resource economically. And Scotland is perfect. It has high wind speeds all around the northeast coast where we have our Murray East wind farm. And when you look at what's coming around the corner for Scotland in terms of offshore wind, we're going to have 11 gigawatts of projects potentially being built in the coming decade. And in terms of its ability and perfect location for offshore wind, it's a great place for us to be right now. It's important to note that offshore wind is continually innovating. And one of the things we're doing at Ocean Winds and our peers are doing elsewhere in the world is looking at how we move even further offshore where wind speeds are even higher and our infrastructure can generate more electricity more efficiently, is that we're moving from structures that are built with foundations in the seabed to structures that are now floating. And so the next generation that you'll see coming and your listeners will will start to hear more about is that floating offshore wind turbines are a real prospect, particularly in Scotland. And it's a great innovation for us to access more of the great resource we have in the North Sea.
1: In terms of a floating wind farm, what benefits does that have in comparison to something that would be stationary?
4: Well, the challenge of going into deeper water is it's obviously very difficult to build in our oceans, and particularly as you get deeper, the foundations become a constraint for us in terms of getting something fixed to the seabed. So, to ensure that we can extract the value out of our resource in the North Sea, having floating turbines is the next step, both economically and from an efficiency perspective. And it's one of these things, again, you know, we take and we learn from other industries such as oil and gas. And then we take those learnings and we develop them further to try and transfer that innovation to offshore wind. So you want to save the planet?
1: Before we go, I want to take another trip back to the eco village in Finhorn. We
0: were hearing in the last episode all about how they reuse water. So I'm excited for you to tell me what else they've managed to recycle.
1: Well, this week we're going to hear all about how they've reused whiskey barrels to build houses.
0: To build houses?
1: To build houses, yeah. I mean, I've been in one of these houses. This is where this interview took place, so like, just keep that in mind when okay. you're listening. And to be honest, it's you know, it's not a big house, but it's it was nice enough. And also, it, to be fair, it was an absolutely boiling day. So whether or not it's very good in the winter, I don't know. But yeah, I think I started with one, then they started to build more, and now they have a wee community within Findhorn that's just whiskey barrel houses.
0: Okay, well let's not waste any time then. I want to know how and I want to know why.
1: Well, the bonus here is you also get to hear from Finthorn resident Roger Donda, who has a pretty interesting backstory. So let's go to him now.
6: I was born in the United States and I came to Findhorn. After hearing about it in San Francisco in 1973, I came here in the fall of 1974, but not until we got Richard Nixon out of the White House. <laughs> I came here as, a, as really as a part of my spiritual quest, largely inspired by the phenomenon of big veg produced by communication with subtle worlds. I said, what is that all about? So I had to come and find out and... Um, Discovered a community of largely young people from America, South Africa, from Australia. I think drawn largely by the same tales of miracles happening here. You know, it was a, a marvellous, dynamic, vibrant place.
1: Tell me about the house we're in here and what it's made out of and the whole idea behind that.
6: I was asked in 1982 to organize a conference called Building a Planetary Village. It was meant to set the scene for buying the caravan park, which it did. And, well, we and our global network of supporters basically bought the caravan park in 1983, the following year, with the intention of converting it from a caravan park to an, what we then called a planetary village, and later have called an eco-village. So I went back to California in 1984 to work on a, an idealistic political campaign, which didn't really go very far. But at least it set the scene for, it set the scene for Ronald Reagan's second term. Actually, so I came back to it came back to Findhorn in, in uh, I think it was October 1984, only to discover that although we had bought the caravan park, nothing much had been happening in the way of converting things. And within that context, shortly after that, I made a visit to a place called Speyside Cooperage, which had been supplying me with old whiskey staves for firewood. They took me aside into a warehouse and showed me these vessels that they had just removed from a distillery in Fife, I think it was Hague and Hague. and they didn't know what to do with them. I said, well, <laughs> I didn't know what I would do with them either, but as I was driving away, you know, a variety of possibilities started to occur considering starting our own Steiner School. Rudolf Steiner recommends organic shapes for children to be educated in rather than boxes. So I thought that might be a possibility. Unfortunately, parents have difficulty with the idea of their kids being educated in whiskey vats. So I had to find up an alternative solution. And basically it was to build the first vat for my own house. And I did so and moved in and a year later with the help of other community members with relevant skills, as well as a number of Foundation guests. There are now five, it's a cluster of five, of these Whiskey Barrel homes. um, And it's one of the best community-infused places, I think, in town, uh, largely because we've been getting together for personal sharings and, you know, know, get-togethers, basically, with sharing food and so forth.
1: I mean, there might be people who who listen to our podcast and they might think, I can't go and live in an eco-village, but I'd like to be helping the planet more. What would be some things that you think people can do just to even be a little bit more friendly to the climate?
6: Well, in addition to eco-villages, there are things called co-housing schemes. There are also things called transition towns. And these are places where, you know, people in more ordinary kind of conurbations are finding a way to share and to build community. Build a sense of community, and in so doing, you know they have less incentive to, uh, to do the conventional rat race, consumerist type of option. And the more people who get off that particular approach to life, I think the better chance we all will have to uh, lead a more sustainable and fulfilling existence. Frankly. So you want to save the planet?
0: He tried to run for president against Ronald Reagan. Did I pick that up right?
1: You did. I mean, I didn't really think when we started this whole podcast that we were going to have any chance to talk about Ronald Reagan, but here we are.
0: Here we are. Who knew? It's amazing the places that climate change and sustainability takes you.
1: Exactly. We went to the countryside this week and next week, Natalie, you're going to take us to the cities. So... Tell us a little bit about what's going to happen there.
0: So next week, we are going to be looking at what our big cities can do to help target climate change. Obviously, cities are big populous areas with lots of transport links and just an awful lot of people um, who aren't necessarily doing the best that they can for the climate. So we are going to look at how cities are adapting to try and get themselves to net zero by 2030.
1: Well, I'm looking forward to it, and of course, you can find it in the same place that you find each episode every week.
0: The planet
4: and the countryside.